This is the On The Banks Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at OTB underscore SB Nation. Now, here's your host, Aaron Brightman. Welcome back to the On The Banks Podcast, episode 99. This is managing editor Aaron Brightman. Thanks so much for joining us once again. We had a little bit of a break in the summer. Busy planning for the fall. I'm uh, right now adding uh, contributors to the site. And, uh, but there was still plenty of news to cover. Really wanted to focus on this episode, on all the changes that are happening within the NCAA in the past month. So much has changed um, with the uh, Supreme Court unanimous ruling against the NCAA and the Alston case ruling uh, that student athletes should get unlimited academic benefits, um, which quickly led to the NCAA changing course and finally uh, allowing for uh, name, image, and likeness rights for student athletes uh, across all sports. Uh, so certainly uh, a landmark month across college athletics. It's a long time coming. Uh, it's really a great thing that student athletes now have the ability that, that really they always should have had uh, to be able to promote their brands and benefit off their name, image, and likeness. I wanted to really focus on that. Uh, and, and to do that, I brought in a longtime friend, real expert in antitrust law, Jason Spiro. So wanted to bring him in now. And now it's my pleasure to welcome in Jason Spiro, who is founding partner of Spiro Harrison, a New Jersey-based law firm that practices in antitrust, intellectual property, and other areas implicated by the NCAA's restrictions on athlete compensation, and also longtime Rutgers supporter, Rutgers alum. We went to Rutgers together. We also have known each other since we were five years old. So it's my pleasure to welcome in Jason. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, great to be here. It's it's been uh, you know I should have been on sooner. I mean episode ninety nine, but I'll take it. <laughs> That's fair. I'll uh, I'll take that. But uh, lots to talk about with the recent developments uh, with the NCA name, image, and likeness rights has been all the all the talk in the last month uh, going into effect on July first. But I wanted to start a little bit before that with the uh, pretty much historic uh, Supreme Court ruling on the Austin case, which was a, a unanimous. Uh, nine to nothing ruling against um, the NCAA, which essentially was the groundbreaking decision to essentially end amateurism. Wanted to get your thoughts on that. Were you surprised by the unanimous decision by the Supreme Court? And how do you think that that has kind of, uh, w- what's the impact of that decision? Sure. It, it, so it, 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 will, it has had an impact. It's been significant already. So it, and it, and it was a 9-0 decision. I think it, it wasn't necessarily surprising that the Supreme Court went the way it did. Uh, in some ways, it, it may have been surprising at the strength of some of the views expressed by the Supreme Court, uh, especially the, the concurring opinion of Justice Kavanaugh. I think, I think everyone took notice. Uh, one, you know, as you said, it was both liberals and conservatives in a, in a very united and strong opinion indicated that the Supreme Court and the courts Will, will, will need to, going forward, give close scrutiny to NCAA rules, acknowledging that there are antitrust issues implicated and also uh, suggesting that the pro-competitive benefits that the NCAA has been speaking about for years aren't quite as strong as the NCAA set forth. But, but looking specifically at Judge Kavanaugh's decision, uh, he gave kind of a roadmap for you know, over, overturning pretty much any NCAA rule that restricts player compensation and, and potentially just restrictions on players in general. I mean, I, I think what, what's been really unbelievable is that, you know, the NCAA essentially has lost 
the majority of its authority over the body that, that it has uh, ruled for so long. Um, what I, I find fascinating is how much of a roadblock they've put up uh, over the years, um, you know, especially with name, image, and likeness, you know, the Ed O'Bannon lawsuit from years ago, that was an opportunity to, to embrace uh, and at least maybe, you know, give something to the student athletes, which they didn't do. They really held the line for years and years and years. They spent literally millions of dollars. They spent $252 million in legal funds the last five years. Um, just in Austin alone, they spent uh, $70 plus million for holding that part of a line. And then all of a sudden, within a week of the Supreme Court ruling, they essentially fell, um, you know, they stopped their opposition of the name, image, and likeness rights um, and went into effect uh, across the board on July 1st. Were you surprised that they changed their course so quickly? And do you think it was kind of a last ditch effort or almost like a desperate move to be able to maintain any type of authority they may have moving forward? So I guess in the first, was it surprising? It, it really wasn't given everything that had happened. And as you mentioned, the Ed O'Bannon case really kind of started to lay the foundation for the, the challenge on name, image, and likeness. And, and not long after that decision, California and, and a number of states started to pass laws that were, were very problematic for the NCAA. Uh, and the NCAA was, was, as those started to become passed, they, they moved forward with their own policies, which were going to be much more restrictive than what they ended up doing in June. But the DOJ, and, there, and it's, it's public that the DOJ sent them a letter, which kind of put them on notice that the types of policies they were looking to impose, and that was in, in January of this year, uh, are problematic. And so when the Supreme Court came down with the decision it did, and, and you know, especially some of the language of Justin, Justice Kavanaugh's uh, opinion, it was really the only choice they had was if, if they immediately did anything other than an interim policy, which kind of says it's up to the states, it's up to the colleges, it's up to the conferences, you know, we're not really imposing restrictions, it would have just resulted in more lawsuits that would have, I think they, they realized, dug them into a deeper hole. So what I find interesting about it is that, you know, the, their argument in the Austin case was that, which ruled that, you know, uh, athletes, student athletes were entitled to um, unlimited academic benefits, things with laptops, internships, postgraduate opportunities. You know, the NCA's stance was that it would, it would uh, compromise uh, recruiting advantages. And then now here we are, name, image, and likeness goes into effect, essentially, you know, with, with very little uh, regulation in effect. And now, um, you know, we're about a month in and we're already seeing the different impact it's having at, at major, you know, programs like Michigan, Miami, Miami, there's a booster that offered uh, any football player that wanted thousands of dollars. You know, Michigan is now selling football jerseys. I think it was about 50 players with their names on it. So those are huge opportunities for players that are at programs like that. How concerned are you from a legal perspective that there is very little regulation right now? And, and how much of a, a wild card is that in this initial stage of name, image, and likeness rights being in effect? Yeah, it's, I think there is some concern, although it, it probably is short-lived. There, there is some likelihood that the Congress will step in at some point. I don't think the state Fair Pay for Play Act uh, statutes are going to be all that different between, between the states. So there, there is some risk, but even the, the examples that we're, we can kind of point to, they feel maybe shocking at first. You know, Miami 
it's $540,000, but it, it kind of you know, kicks around to maybe 6,000 a player. Jersey sales probably aren't as, as significant as, as we all think and, and really won't be the driving force. What probably will be the driving force is the thing that we all thought players should get you know, from the very beginning, which is the ability to create their own brands, promote those brands, develop kind of business models for themselves. And, and profit from, the, from, from those business models. And that's really, if, if we had to guess where they're going to make their money, it'll, it'll be through those driving forces, at least kind of the biggest dollars that we're talking about. And that's kind of, you know, Nick, Nick Saban today dropped his, uh, you know, very aw shucks kind of moment where he said that you know, Bryce Young is, has near, nearly $1 million in NIL deals. I mean, that's, that's what you're really talking about. And sure, that uh, it has something to do with being at Alabama, but I think you're going to see, a lot of players who aren't at Alabama uh, finding ways to promote themselves and in, in ways to get them that type of, of money. And, you know, the example that I think is kicked around is I think it's the Cavender twins at Fresno state. I mean, they have 4 million, you know, plus followers on social media, you know, that's, that's not a Fresno state advantage. That's, you know, savvy marketing and, and you know, just being uh, charismatic or whatever it is to takes becoming that kind of social media influencer. Well, I think that's a great point. And, 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 you know, I've had a lot of Rutgers fans comment that they think that, you know, Rutgers has some sort of advantage long term because of the New York City market. And, and I've pointed to exactly what you just said. I think with social media, with digital brands, with, you know, everything being so online focused nowadays, I really think that, you know, where, where you're located has, I almost think, you know, it's a disadvantage in a way for Rutgers, for maybe not the top draws top student athletes but for that middle level athlete you, you get lost in the shuffle you know with all the pro sports teams here and everything like that geo baker who's you know essentially played an instrumental role in nl uh, il rights obviously has signed several deals already but they're all local you know if you're you know in the sec or the big 12 and you're in one of these college towns that's in you know middle america i think you know you, you can stand out and, and stick out a lot more and have more of an impact um, and I think that's where that social media ties in. The Cavender Twins is a perfect example. Uh, you know, the, the, they actually signed the first NIL deal there was, and they had a billboard in Times Square on July 1st. So there's your New York City, uh, you know, pull right there. Just in terms of, from a Rutgers perspective, uh, and New Jersey, you know, New Jersey was a little bit ahead of the game or, or at the forefront. You know, they passed this uh, NIL uh, legislation pretty early. They were one of, I think, the first 10 states to do so. But the legislation doesn't go into, into law until 2025. From a Rutgers perspective, how does that affect, you know, student athletes at Rutgers right now? And, and from a Rutgers administration standpoint, you know, how does that affect how they look at things right now? So I, th I think they're looking at it the right way. The, the idea for them is, I mean, it gives them a little bit more you know, leeway with, with, without the state law in effect, because states that don't have a law in effect, which is still most states, there really aren't any restrictions other than kind of the, the pay for play restrictions on, on money coming from colleges and, and for recruiting and, and those types of things. But the NIL is, is wide open. And, you know, they, they, they immediately announced a deal uh, with open doors, which is, is and the idea behind it. And I think it is, it is a good attraction for recruits is we have one of the kind of leaders of the industry who's coming into our school and is going to teach you how to build your brand, how to protect your brand, you know, kind of train them in the ways to, to become savvy in that space. And, you know, Open Doors is interesting because they've, they've been in it on an individual player level for, for you know, some time. It's still a fairly young industry, 
but they have a marketplace that's set up separate from Rutgers. You know, they're out there kind of pre predicting that it's a billion dollar industry. And, you know, I think their bet on that is that it's going to be through players doing programs like what they're doing with Rutgers, learning how to connect with people on social media uh, so that they can maximize, you know, the, their brand and, and how they can profit from it. So from a recruiting perspective, I, I agree. I think that Rutgers had to do what they did. They had to, um, you know, launch this, this partnership, you know, and, and we've seen other high major universities do it. Ohio State and Alabama pretty much did it right away. I think it's going to become pretty normal. But from a recruiting perspective, you know, if you're, if you're a coach now, if you're an athletic department, how does this kind of shape or change their approach? Uh, and how do you think recruits moving forward will, will approach things in terms of their process? Yeah, it, it could be an unfortunate side effect. Is that is, you know, it's a, it's a team sport or a, a lot of these are team sports but a lot more players. And, and I think understandably will be thinking about, you know, their brands and the, the, the me part of it and the business part of it is it's not going to be something that just NFL players are talking about college football players, you know, will be talking about it and thinking about it. So, you know, there is, a, there is a question as, as to, you know, I, I think on one level from a recruiting standpoint, you'd be at the front of that and say, we're here to support that. And we have the best support for that out of any school in the country and, and look at what we've set up. You know, from a coaching standpoint, it may it may create some challenges that, you know, we don't we don't even know what kind of uh, impact it will have on on getting a team together and, and losing a room maybe a little more quickly than they than some coaches have in the past. Yeah, I think the locker room dynamics are certainly going to be something that's going to be interesting to watch. I think also, you know, I mentioned to you previously, it's when Olympic sports, you know, depending on the star power of an athlete, uh, the, the reach they may have, you may have an Olympic sport athlete that's potentially making more in NIL rights than their actual coach. Most uh, Olympic sports coaches at Rutgers make between $100,000 and $200,000. So um, I, again, I don't think that will be commonplace amongst Olympic sport athletes, but it's certainly possible. You know, if you look back, um, you know, like a Carly Lloyd, a Todd Frazier, what would they have, you know, made back in the day if they were here for that? Um, you know, a Ray Rice. I mean, th those, uh, those type of athletes, you know, certainly would have been a draw. People were mentioning Corey Sanders with basketball. You know, what would, would he have made? I think another interesting aspect is players' decisions to leave early for the pros versus staying an extra year and now having the opportunity um, to continue to cash in with NIL rights. I think that will be a really interesting thing to watch in the future too. Yeah, there's. A, I think there's a big incentive to stay because at the college level, there's there's probably a much more significant opportunity for for most of the athletes. To, to play a prominent kind of national role than, than there is at the, at the pro level. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of athletes who become heroes in college that, you know, it's, it's unlikely they'll ever achieve that, um, you know, beyond, beyond that at the pro level. And, you know, they can profit from that in a way that, that would keep them there. So from a legal perspective, in terms of, you know, like the Miami example, right, is it essentially a booster that, that, that is legally now offering payments to players through the NL, NIL rights. Obviously, the NCAA has a very uh, spotty, I, I maybe being kind there, track record in terms of regulating uh, recruiting violations. You know, you still have how Will Wade is still at LSU when he's caught on tape uh, talking about, you know, essentially offering illegal benefits. From a legal perspective, how challenging is it now to regulate where, you know, it's, it's a legitimate business, it's a legitimate, you know, endorsement versus what's to stop, you know, boosters from basically 
in the past paying under the table to now they're legally right out in front paying on the table. It's, it's probably a better regime this way because, in, as you just said, in the past, if a booster wanted to do it, they do it under the table. It's hard to detect. You know, in this in this regime, I, you know, I guess you could still do that. But, you know, one thing that is clear and I think would, will be clear with any policy or most of the state policies say this, you need, you need to report your deals. Um, and so they're going to be scrutinized. And if it and if there's something that, that doesn't look right about it, you know, I guess if, if you're a smart booster, you're going to structure in a way that, you know, can can pass muster. But everyone's going to be seeing it. And if there's a pattern of it, it'll probably come out faster and it'll be it'll be a lot easier to you know, to hit them for it, especially if, if it's you know, a function of them not fully reporting what happens. And just in terms of, you know, potential legal issues that could arise from, from this now, you know, becoming such a um, prominent facet of college athletics, you know, uh, I, I can imagine that, you know, it's almost going to create a whole nother kind of niche industry um, with agents, you know, being able to work with college athletes and, um, you know, what I guess legal issues or questions could arise in the future with, with the new reality of NIL rights? So, I mean, I think a lot of that's to come. You know, one, one thing that, that we've seen is there has been a lot of proposed legislation um, that would really kind of take over the, you know, the state NIL regime. And, you know, Cory Booker, our senator, was one of the first and most prominent. And his, his, his uh, proposal is you know, very, very aggressive at, at giving players rights and, and goes beyond that. I mean, it takes away, you know, a, a, a significant part of the uh, NCAA's authority. And I, I don't necessarily think that's the one that, that goes through, or at least it doesn't go through in that form. But I think those are the things you, you're probably going to see more legal issues surrounding what eventually comes out in the interpretation of actual rules than the kind of Wild West. It's, I mean, it's more going to be, you know, is it kind of disguised uh, pay for play? through a sponsorship uh, deal, like you could say the Miami deal may at least raise people, raise flags. But at this, at this point in time, I don't know that the NCAA is really taking steps to enforce what it sees as, as wrong in the marketplace, because it's kind of hoping the other shoe will drop, that it'll, it'll have federal legislation come down soon, or that it comes up with, if, it, if that doesn't happen, its own policies to address these things. So segueing into that, how, with everything that's happened now, how do you see the future of the NCA and, and how it will exist uh, or will it exist in the future long term uh, now that, that all these things are, are now changing? Uh, yeah, so, I, so I think it, it's, there's going to be a lot more freedom. You know, there's going to be a lot more freedom that, that should be had by players who, uh, you know, freedom as to where, where they want to go and where they want to play and, and how they can kind of manage you know, manage their money a little better and, and have a little bit more opportunity than they did before. You know, I don't think it's going to be an area era of everyone driving around in, in Rolls Royce, but yeah, I do <laughs> think you're going to, you're going to see some, you know, significant changes in the profiles of players and uh, a lot more kind of national attention. Anyone that says it's not going to significantly change college sports. I think that that's probably wrong, <laughs> but uh, you know, probably the same people that said Kurt flood wasn't, you know, and free agency wasn't going to change baseball. Well, I think that's a great point, and I was going to bring that up because, as I learned in my sports labor studies class at Rutgers, you know, I I love that case and with Marvin Miller, and you know, the whole argument from the owners in that case, in that situation was that you know they were afraid of the players having the freedom and and being able to make more money, and all that happened from it is everyone made more money, 
So that's what I wanted to ask from a university perspective. You know, I guess there's the concern if the players are making money, if student athletes are now making money off their own likeness, what concerns could they have from a legal perspective? Is it simply financial or could it end up being like it did with Major League Baseball, where it just ends up breeding more money for college athletics, for TV rights, for licensing rights? And at the end of the day, the university actually profits even more from this move. Yeah, I, I think that's what I mean. The, the universities, I mean, if you compare the NCAA to the 1980s, I mean, the amount of money, the revenue making machine it is today is so different. I don't think that's going to change. And I don't think so that the, the player is doing well. And, and as of right now, it's not really coming out of the NCAA. It's coming out of their own ability to monetize it. I think it should only in, in, in many ways elevate the profile of the players, which elevates the profile of the teams. So from a, from a, a revenue standpoint, it's it's probably going to you know, result in, in, in positives. All right. So Justin, uh, thank you so much for, for going through all of that. Obviously, uh, it's a changing world in college athletics. And, and I thought of no one better to, to talk to about it than you. But wanted to get your thoughts, uh, just a little bit more fun topic uh, with Rutgers Athletics heading into the fall. You know, obviously uh, a pretty promising past season across multiple sports. Uh, you know, the, the Learfield Director Cup, Rutgers had its best finish, second best finish ever, best finish in 14 years. And, you know, I think with the COVID rule, with the super seniors effect, I, I haven't, you know, gone through the whole Big Ten, but Rutgers has certainly benefited from it, especially with a lot of the Olympic sports. What are you most excited about going into the fall? Um, what teams are you excited about? And, and, and how happy are you to finally see Rutgers, you know, in the position they're in uh, with, with a brighter future ahead in the Big Ten? Oh, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. You know, Rutgers, Rutgers football, of course, is on the way up, but we, we've, we've had some success in our, our lifetime there. And you know, basketball, maybe a, a little less so. We, we, we had some success probably in the, in the 2000s. I think what's amazing is, is it's across all sports. You know, it's, it's lacrosse, it's field hockey, it's women's volleyball. You know, all the Olympic sports, ev- everything is rising up, which is fantastic. And it's exciting to watch, you know, the lacrosse team make it to the NCAAs this year, at the, the men's lacrosse team. It's excited, exciting to watch all these things. If, you know, the only thing we can ask for that, that would be better is if, bring back hockey and men's rowing and, and expand our uh, sports back to all the, the programs we lost a, a few years back. Well, that brings up actually an interesting point because, you know, with DNCA and, you know, the, the uh, title nine and all that, you know, does, does that somehow get changed and are, is there a potential now for more sports to be added, you know, at certain universities with, with the NCA's kind of authority being threatened here? So I, you know, I don't think it'll change uh, it, it won't change all that. I, I think it'd be more indirect, you know, maybe, maybe with kind of the rising up of athletes in, in so many different sports, because I, you know, these, these types of, you know, the branding probably has more of an impact on the individual athletes than, than maybe some would expect. And it, it, ha- it can have a bigger impact on, on some of the traditional off kind of, uh, you know, not the power NCAA sport. So you may see a lot of prominence come to sports, that maybe there'll be some kind of momentum just to expand the offerings for athletes because, you know, there's it's just more excitement about, you know, college sports in general. So not to talk politics, but just from, a, I guess, your kind of legal and, and, and also Rutgers perspective, you know, Governor Murphy has, has certainly taken a larger role, I guess you could say, in terms of Rutgers and specifically Rutgers athletics with the hiring of Greg Schiano and also just being more visible at Rutgers games. 
you know, how, how much of a positive do you think that is? Whether you're Republican or Democrat, just having the New Jersey governor finally kind of invested, I would even say emotionally, uh, into Rutgers sports. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, and you're right. It's, it's a Rutgers thing. It's great to have a, a, a just putting one, if one criteria is having a, a governor, you know, who, who roots for Rutgers, not Notre Dame, right? That's, <laughs> That's a great criteria. Uh, you know, maybe rich for the Giants, not the Cowboys. I, I mean, there's a couple of things we could put out there, but you, you do you do see him uh, at the games. You see him excited. He's wearing red. It's uh, it, it's a great thing to watch. I, I would also add, aside from uh, Chris Christie, that uh, I'm still bitter about Jim McGreevy being, uh, you know, actively rooting for Seton Hall at the rack and then criticizing. You know, if you remember that game, there was there was a little bit of a scuffle and. He said how inappropriate it was, and uh, that, that still rubbed me the wrong way. But uh, I agree. It's nice to have a, a governor that roots for its state school and also, uh, you know, its NFL teams that are here. And just uh, a couple more just with Rutgers sports. So it, what team aside from basketball and football do you think has – are you most excited about heading into next year? Uh, you know, so I'm – so I have, uh, I have kids who all play lacrosse, so I, I watch all the Rutgers lacrosse you know, the men's and the women's also it, it's, I think it's fun to watch wrestling. We've had we've just fantastic success with that program. Uh, and I, I think it just continues to build, but you know, it's, it's really across the board. It, it's amazing. You know, how many, how many different like, improvements and success we've seen in the last just two years. You know, it's, it, they're all, they're all reasons to be excited. And with all the changes we've seen with Rutgers athletics, you know, under uh, athletic director, Pat Hobbs, we now have, you know, uh, obviously Jonathan Holloway, the new president. It seems like Rutgers is as well positioned to be able to adapt to the changes that are happening across the NCA. You know, we finally have facilities in place. So of course I, I laugh. We finally have the facilities in place to recruit and then NLI rights comes into, into play uh, and, and throws a whole nother wrinkle. But my question is, how confident are you that Rutgers is, is actually positioned and thinking the right way to be able to continue to elevate uh, the university as a whole, but also the athletic department within the Big Ten uh, with all these changes that are happening and, and more changes that will uh, likely come in the future? I think incredibly well positioned. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a progressive movement and Rutgers is, is a progressive school in a, in a progressive state. And I mean, you, so you see it with the coaching staff, they get it. Uh, Coach Pike was at the at the forefront of this, right along with you know with Geo Baker. I mean, he he was very supportive of of everything that that Geo was doing, you know. And and not every you take it for granted. I don't think every coach would would have been so supportive. And I think Coach Shiano is showing the same thing. And you know, there's a culture there to, to support athletes and and their kind of movement. And you know, when they create foundations and do things to help the world. And that that is another kind of side benefit of this is you may see with players, you know, who have the responsibility of having more income are, are doing more, you know, for the world around them. Uh, and that could be a big, big, fantastic movement to watch. Jason Spiro, founding partner of Spiro Harrison, a longtime Rutgers fan, Rutgers alum, and the longest, the oldest friend I've, I have. Thank you so much for being here. Appreciate <laughs> everything. Uh, you really uh, made things easy to understand in terms of all the changes. And, uh, you know, I find everything that's happening right now across NCAA fascinating. And um, really appreciate you being here to explain everything and uh, look forward to uh, having a beer with you soon, watching a Rutgers game this fall. Thanks, Aaron. Yeah, I mean, you do a fantastic job with On the Banks. There's a reason they call you the Rich Eyes and the Rutgers. And uh, <laughs> we're going to continue to watch your uh, your viewership grow. I, I'm, I'm certain of it. 
Thanks again to Jason Spiro for joining us to talk about all the ins and outs with the NCA and the, the new uh, NIL rights, the uh, Supreme Court ruling and everything else. Really, I think uh, the landscape of college athletics has changed forever. Amateurism isn't dead. It's certainly hanging on by a thread. And I think what's, you know, watching what happens in the next year plus is really going to be fascinating to keep an eye on. In terms of Rutgers, we're, we're just a few weeks out from training camp for football. Uh, Big Ten media days are, are taking place in a few days. So make sure you check out On the Banks for full coverage there. And then uh, we'll be back in uh, two weeks. Uh, special guest for episode 100, which will be announcing soon enough. And uh, for all your coverage of Rutgers Athletics, make sure to, to visit onthebanks.com. We're on Twitter, OTB underscore SB Nation. We're on Facebook and Instagram as well, OTB underscore SB Nation. And uh, you can listen to this and all of our previous 98 podcast episodes um, on iTunes and anywhere else uh, you get your podcast. So thank you so much for listening again. We'll be back soon. Appreciate everyone reading the site here at On The Banks. Follow On The Banks on Twitter at OTB underscore SB Nation and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Just search On The Banks Podcast.